And welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Um, I'm not hearing my voice. Hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Ah, uh, is that better? Are you hearing me now? Okay, good. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, I was having a little trouble with my microphone here, but uh, uh, on track now. Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Going to talk today about how to transform a parish. Question for you. Would you like to transform your parish? Would you like a growing parish? Uh, a parish where the people have a real enthusiasm for evangelization? A parish where lives are changed by an ever deeper encounter with Christ in the Holy Eucharist? Well, unless you have such a parish, I'm going to assume that the answer is yes. So today we're going to talk about such a parish and the one weird trick, as they say on the internet, that made the difference. Also, we've been talking about New Year's resolution over the last couple of weeks and various strategies for cultivating good habits. And many of the most common New Year's resolutions, though, have to do with overcoming bad habits. You know, quit smoking, stop overeating, spend less time on the internet, that sort of thing. So later on, we will look at biblical strategies to overcome bad habits and also have a few words about Benedict XVI's funeral mass, how to heal the rupture of experience at your parish and what that means. But first, the gospel from the second Sunday after Epiphany in the extraordinary form of the mass is the wedding feast at Cana from John 2 verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. When the wine was exhausted, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus responded, Woman, what concern is this to us? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing nearby, there were six stone water jars, a type used for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus instructed the servants, fill the jars with water. When they had filled them to the brim, he ordered them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. And they did so. And when the chief steward tasted the water, which had become wine, he did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. The chief steward called over the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the choice wine first, and then an inferior vintage when the guests have been drinking for a while. However, you have saved the best wine until now. Jesus performed this, the first of his signs, at Cana in Galilee, thereby revealing his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. <clears throat> now, this is one of my very favorite episodes in the Gospels. It's wonderful and mysterious and filled with meaning. And I'd like to look at it today in kind of a reverse order, beginning with verse 11, <clears throat> where the evangelist tells us that this was the first of our Lord's signs. John uses the term signs rather than miracles or mighty deeds like the other evangelists, because he wants to emphasize the significance of his miracles, the deeper meaning, rather than the remarkable nature. And the purpose of Jesus' first sign was to reveal his glory so that his disciples would believe in him. But there's more. Consider the two kinds of wine represented here. We have the first wine, the wine that failed, the wine that ran out, the wine that was uh, not sufficient. This wine represents the old covenant. The second, superior wine, the best wine, represents the new covenant and the sacramental system. 
So the stone water jars mentioned in the text are called baptismoi in Greek, hence an allusion to baptism, which will be raised from a symbolic washing to a sacrament. The wine alludes to the Eucharist, where the old covenant paschal symbolism is fulfilled on the cross and made present for us sacramentally in the Holy Mass. And further, Jesus is using the occasion of this wedding feast to prefigure the messianic banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But by his very presence at the marriage feast at Cana, Jesus honored and sanctified marriage, which he had already, or which had already been instituted in the Garden of Eden. It was always from the beginning an indissoluble union, sanctioned by God, as Jesus points out in Matthew 19. But now it's made even more sacred and indissoluble, for Christ raises it to the level of a sacrament and a symbol of his own union with the church. Hence, he comes here with the first fruits of his church to celebrate, so to speak, a, a double marriage feast, that of himself and his church, as well as of the bride and bridegroom. Also, there's another sign of messianic fulfillment here when Jesus calls Mary woman. Now, this may sound cold or odd to our modern American ears, but at the time, as I understand it, it was a universal address from son to mother. Certainly nothing less than that. Certainly not a rebuke or a sign of disrespect, as some of our separated brethren would rather impiously suggest. On the contrary, it's actually much more than a simple address. St. John begins this episode by calling special attention to the presence of the mother of Jesus and the fact that our Lord addresses her as woman. And the reason is that it is Mary's role to call Jesus to the cross and then stand by him in his passion. And this becomes evident in John 19, verses 25 and 26, where he again calls his mother woman. And this tells us that Mary is the new Eve. Woman was the name that Adam gave to Eve when she first appeared in uh, the Garden of Eden. And after the fall, God promised another woman who would crush the head of Satan. That woman is Mary. So Jesus calls Mary woman at the wedding at Cana and from the cross. And nowhere else in the Bible do we find a son referring to his mother as woman. Both Jesus, Moses, the you know author of Genesis, and St. John use the name woman to reveal Mary as the new Eve. The first Eve, we know, listened to a bad angel, the serpent, the devil, and disobeyed God. The new Eve, Mary, listened to the good angel, St. Gabriel, and obeyed God. In the garden, the first Eve encouraged Adam, and he fell into sin. At the wedding at Cana, Mary encouraged Jesus, right, the new Eve and the new Adam, to perform his first miracle. As Eve was the mother of the living in the order of nature, Mary is the mother of the living in the order of grace. And if that weren't enough, the specific Koine Greek term for woman, gune, is only used in Scripture in reference to Eve and to Mary. And in the book of Revelation, St. John makes his last reference to this woman, now bodily assumed and crowned in heaven. So in the very first book and the very last book of the Bible, we find the woman. And likewise, at the very beginning and at the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus, that is, at the wedding at Cana and at the cross, we also find the woman. Woman, he says literally, what is this to me and to thee? My hour is not yet come. What is this between us? What, what, what is this concern? To, how does this concern us? It's a Hebrew idiom expressed in Greek and then variously translated into English. 
And like so many terms in John's gospel, it has a dual meaning. It's like asking in English, what do you want me to do about it? Now, it can be positive, so what would you have me do? Or negative, so what do you want me to do about it? Now, obviously, as we can see from our Lord's miracle, in this case, it's the former. And, and it's possible that Jesus wanted all who were present to understand that he had not received the power of working miracles as the son of a human woman, but as the son of Almighty God, and therefore should only use that power according to the will of his Father. When he says, my hour has not yet come, the hour referred to is that of his glorification and return to the Father. And this hour will be determined uh, this hour will be determined by the Father. It can't be anticipated. However, the miracle he works at Mary's intercession is a prophetic symbol of it. That is why she is mediatrix of all graces. As St. Bernard said, Jesus came to us through Mary, and likewise now he wishes us to come to him through Mary. And this is the secret of Mary's infallible intercession, that she only asks that which is in accord with the will of the Father. Remember Our Lady's words to the angel Gabriel, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Or when you look at the prayers of supplication on old holy cards, it always asks that God grant us our petition with the following proviso, if it be for your greater glory and the salvation of my soul. God always grants those petitions which are according to his will. Hence, Our Lady's inspired words, do whatever he tells you. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, just a couple of minutes uh, left in this segment, and I want to take this time to remind you that uh, our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference is coming up before you know it, March the 25th and 26th of 2023. And this year we have a very special guest, Bishop Joseph Strickland will be joining us, along with world-renowned exorcist Father Chad Ripperger, our own Jesse Romero, and Dr. Dan Schneider, and Kyle Clements, from the Liber Cristo Deliverance Ministry. Now, once again this year, the conference will be held at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Pomona. And there's a reason for this. We used to uh, have the conference here uh, in Covina at the Sacred Heart Chapel, but it simply outgrew it. And the uh, St. Joseph's in Pomona can accommodate something like three times the people than the Sacred Heart Chapel. And add to that that it is an absolutely beautiful old church and they do a very reverent Novus Ordo at that church um, in in these you know very very Catholic surroundings. Uh, so it's a you know it's a, it's a good fit. But I would be remiss if I did not inform you that last year, even with the bigger venue, we had to close registration early because of the large uh, volume of people who wanted to attend. So this is our most popular conference, and so I want you to be sure to register soon. Admission is $95 for a single, $180 for a married couple. Registration is currently open. It's already filling up, so if you want to attend, do not hesitate to visit vmpr.org and register online. Or call toll-free 877-526-2151 and reserve your place at the annual Spiritual Warfare Conference. Okay, back with more right after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Since the turn of the year, we've been talking about New Year's resolutions. And our focus has been on various strategies for cultivating good habits. But many of the most common New Year's resolutions have to do with overcoming bad habits. To quit smoking or stop overeating, spend less time on the internet, that sort of thing. So I thought we'd take a look at some biblical strategies to overcome bad habits. And human beings are, after all, for good or ill, creatures of habit. For good or ill, we tend to do the same things in the same ways. And that term, bad habits, can cover a wide array of negative behaviors. Now, in a Catholic context, a bad habit could be anything that inhibits our growth and holiness, our sanctification, or that scandalizes others. Bad habits or habitual sins are a real danger because they can harden into vices. For example, the so-called sins of the spirit, like envy, gossip, lying, selfishness, impatience, and um, also various compulsive behaviors like intemperance in eating or drinking or compulsive shopping, overwork, uh, pornography addiction, swearing, and, and on and on. But the subject of bad habits assumes a, a special importance for believers because of the admonition of St. Paul that Christians walk in the newness of life, or what Vatican II called the new life in the spirit. The psalmist encourages us to surrender to the Lord, asking him to search our hearts and reveal all that is displeasing to him. And often what follows is that we see any number of things that we need to deal with. And this is the beginning of the process of sanctification. And, and the important thing to remember is that our sinful habits displease God, okay? But that with the help of his grace, we can overcome them. We know that God can work in our lives to change us for the better because St. Paul says in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for a life of good works that God has prepared for us to do. You know, it is, after all, a sine qua non of the Christian life that just avoiding sin is not enough. We must grow in virtue. And therefore, we begin with the understanding that change is possible for anyone, regardless of their other limitations. As St. Paul says in the Philippians 4.13, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Counting on the help of his grace and the prospect of breaking free from the effects of our bad habits can provide you with the motivation for achieving victory in these areas in your life. Now, of course, the first step is to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, hang on, I can hear you now. I, I thought this was supposed to be no-nonsense Catholic, not no-nonsense fundamentalist. Okay, I'm not suggesting that salvation is some kind of one-time thing where once having accepted Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, you have the assurance of salvation. Our Lord himself said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. It's through baptism that we receive the free and unmerited gift of the initial grace of justification. But that's a beginning, not an end. After all, Jesus didn't say, he who believes and is baptized is saved, but that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Scripture teaches that our salvation is contingent on, on a whole number of things. According to the Bible, we, you know, to be saved, you have to repent and believe in Jesus and be baptized and keep the commandments and live a life of charity and perform good works in a state of grace and receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist, among other things. Salvation, then, is a process. 
And that's why every morning with the, along with the acts of faith and charity and contrition, I make an act of hope. Oh my God, relying on your almighty power and infinite mercy and promises, I hope to obtain the pardon for my sins, the help of your grace and everlasting life through the merits of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Redeemer. Right? This is a matter of hope. It's not something to take for granted. And when we talk about receiving Jesus, Catholics receive him body, blood, soul, and divinity in Holy Communion. You know, th- this is something that Catholics in a state of grace can do every day. But there's also such a thing as a spiritual communion. And though uh, through spiritual communion, you can receive your Lord and Savior many times a day. And this, too, is a part of my daily morning offering. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the Blessed Sacrament. I love you above all things, and I long for you in my soul. And since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I know you have already come. I embrace you and unite myself entirely to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. See, so the ongoing reception of Jesus as Lord and Savior is part of the process of salvation. Sanctification, becoming holy, this is also a process. And bad habits, especially habitual sins, must be faced in specific terms. You have to identify what needs changing. And this is what the examination of conscience is, what the psalmist was talking about. It's a challenge to be faced realistically, because bad habits are hard to break. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. Baptism washes away the stain of original sin, as well as all personal sins, all the temporal punishment due for those sins. But concupiscence remains. Concupiscence remains. Our weakened will, our darkened intellect, our inclination to sin are not washed away. And they cannot be wished away either. And so our good Lord instituted the sacrament of penance to forgive sins committed after baptism. He uh, instituted the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist so that we could receive him body, blood, soul, and divinity, because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so we receive Jesus, we identify our sins, we confess our sins to God, we seek absolution in the sacrament of confession and repeat as necessary. So to overcome bad habits, we have to work at it with the help of his grace. Because, you know, without him, as Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Now, the church teaches that that the way to overcome sins is by practicing the opposing virtues. And we see this in the Bible, in in the principle of exchange, encouraged by St. Paul in Ephesians 4. You were taught to cast aside the old self of your former way of life that had been corrupted by its captivating desires. You are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to clothe yourselves with the new self created in God's image in the way of uprightness and holiness that belong to the truth. So this exchange principles, you put off and put on. You know, ejaculatory prayers can be a great help. Uh, If you had the habit of cursing, for example, you could replace it with a word of praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord my God. Sacred heart of Jesus, make my heart like unto thine. And I know this is Catholic kryptonite, but memorizing pertinent scripture passages can be a help in practicing St. Paul's put-on, put-off principle of exchange. As it says in Psalm 119, verse 11, I treasure your word in my heart for fear that I may sin against you. So to continue with our 
example of the habit of swearing, you might memorize Ephesians 4.29. Let no foul word ever pass your lips. Say only what is useful for edification so that your words may benefit your listeners. The point is there's a wholesome replacement for every bad habit that needs to be broken. Daily prayer, daily Bible reading, which are perfectly combined in the Holy Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours, also in Lectio Divina. Our spiritual reading, uh, our other spiritual reading, like the Lives of the Saints, the Imitation of Christ, the frequent and worthy reception of Holy Communion and regular confession. You know, and, and overcoming some bad habits may require even more help than just the daily practice of your faith. You may need to seek support from a friend or from a group. And there's a pretty good chance that your parish can provide you with the guidance that you need to find that kind of help. And even when we're confronting common bad habits, you know, you may need to go beyond your daily regimen and seek for other opportunities to serve Christ. Uh, in accord with your state of life, of course, obviously a, a mother of five little kids is going to have less time outside the home for such service, but can still find plenty of opportunity to grow in holiness. Kimberly Hahn used to say that she was changing the world one diaper at a time, you know, and, and hopefully there's there's always going to be plenty of opportunity at your own parish church for, for fellowship and prayer, uh, Bible study, and of course opportunities for service like uh, service to the poor all other corporal works of mercy. And we remember that it was our Lord Jesus proposed the corporal works of mercy as a means of salvation when he said in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you clothed me. I was ill and you took care of me, in prison and you came to visit me. Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brethren of mine, you did for me. And finally, consider the words of St. Paul to the Romans from Romans 6, <clears throat> verses 11 through 14. In the same way, he says, you must regard yourselves as being dead to sin and alive for God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not allow sin to reign over your mortal body and make you obey its desires. Nor should you present any part of your body as an instrument for wickedness leading to sin. Rather, Present yourselves to God as having been raised from death to life, and the parts of your body to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin is no longer to have any power over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And what's St. Paul saying here? That because of our union and our identification with Christ, we should no longer want to pursue our own sinful desires but rather to live for the glory of God. Sin is like a tyrant that orders our members into wicked acts, and that enemy is to be fought and renounced and subdued through the Spirit, through grace. And as we embrace the new life of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity will help us to become all that Christ wants us to be. Receiving Jesus is all about embracing your faith, rather than just inheriting it. Now, if we're no longer under the law, but under grace, does that mean, like some Christians seem to think, that, well, since we're saved, we are therefore free to sin with impunity or, or to disregard the commandments? Now, both our good Lord and St. Paul would answer with a resounding no. To be under grace, in the state of grace, is, is the new position of the baptized believer who can now master the urges of sin with the help of, of God, with the help of his grace. 
Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody, right? Every, everybody, all people have a master and pattern themselves after him. Without Jesus, we would have no choice. We'd be enslaved to sin and the results being guilt and suffering and separation from God and possibly eternal separation from God. And thanks to Jesus, though, we can now choose God as our master. Following him, we can enjoy new life and learn how to work for him. And the question for for the believer is, are you still serving your first master? Are you still serving sin, which leads to destruction and death? Or have you received your new master, Christ, who leads you to sanctification and life? The choice is yours with the help of God's grace. And that's no nonsense. All right, when we come back, uh, the one weird trick that can transform your parish. All that and lots more here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We will be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. When Pope Benedict XVI issued Samorum Pontificum back in 2007, the document liberating the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, he also sent a letter to the bishops, wherein he said that they should not be afraid of allowing the celebration of the traditional Mass, but that on the contrary, they should expect what he called the mutual enrichment of the two forms of the Roman Rite. Now, I have seen this myself many times in parishes that celebrate both forms, uh, not only here in the United States, but also in Canada and Australia and elsewhere. And the extraordinary form tends to have the kind of active participations that the Father of Vatican II were so eager to promote. Right, That's the Novus Ordo rubbing off, you know, uh, people following along in the missiles, making all the responses, chanting the glory in the credo, etc. And in the other direction, the, the reverence and general solemnity of the extraordinary form tends to rub off on the celebration of the Novus Ordo, which results in more people coming to Mass in general, more lay involvement in the parish, uh, uh, typically more robust and Catholic atmosphere. But what about the parishes that exclusively offer the ordinary form of the Mass? Is it possible to reap similar benefits in those parishes where the Novus Ordo is celebrated exclusively? Well, I personally know that the answer to that question is yes, because I have visited such parishes and seen it with my own eyes. And there is a simple secret, one which was actually revealed by Pope Paul VI. The same Pope who imposed the Novus Ordo on the church in the first place clearly saw how much was being lost and how quickly. And so he reminded pastors, bishops and priests alike, that liturgy is like a strong tree whose beauty is derived from the continuous renewal of its leaves, but whose strength comes from the old trunk with solid roots in the ground. Right? And this was brought home to me once again in an article I saw the other day called Reverent Worship, Catholic Culture, and Devotion Transform a Parish by Father Michael Renier. And he tells the story of his own parish. He says, When we surveyed our parish, we discovered that the median age was only 25 years old. Thus, mass at our our parish is crawling with children who are highly engaged, 
altar servers debate fiercely over who gets the best tasks, storming the sacristy before mass to claim coveted jobs. The children in the pews whisper loud commentary to their mothers, explaining that the host looks like bread but is in fact Jesus. A number of teenage girls sing in the scola. We are one big family at prayer. However, it wasn't always that way. When he first arrived, there were very few children, and at some masses, none at all. And although he says he loves his older parishioners, a parish without children lacks a future. So when a young family would visit, Father would ask them, what's missing? And the common reply was that they were looking for reverent worship. They were looking for a parish with a beautiful mass where they could immerse their children in the fullness of Catholic culture and devotion. He said, quote, they want their children not only to be told that Jesus loves them, but for them to see, hear, smell, and feel it. And so he set off about offering a mass that would appeal to children as well as adults. So what did he do? Did he dumb things down? Did he, uh, you know, sew some felt banners? Did he send in the clowns? No. He started using incense. He put the altar service in cassocks. He fixed the organ. He added some Latin and chant to the, to the uh, vernacular mass. He says, we reintroduced colorful old devotions like veiling statues in Lent, the Orate Celi Mass, and Eucharistic processions. You know, and uh, FYI, the Orate Celi uh, Mass is a votive Mass to the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, celebrated during Advent, and it's usually celebrated uh, before sunrise, with a church lit only by candles. And if it's timed right, the Rorate Celi Mass begins in darkness, but concludes with the church filled with sunlight. In short, he says, we used already existing liturgical treasures of the church to curate a sense of imaginative wonder. The goal is not a consumerist worship experience. I like that phrase, consumerist worship. Yeah, they're not trying to sell people on the Mass. But rather, he says, a transcendental one. And let me remind you, he did this in order to appeal to the children, where the very people that the modernists are convinced we're going to lose with traditional worship, despite all evidence to the contrary. In the words of Father Renier, quote, this is all it took. In five years, our parish has almost doubled in attendance and overflows with people of all ages. Every Sunday, we give God our most beautiful liturgical gift, incarnating our worship into poetic prayer because the Mass is a lived reality, an open door to eternity. The sacramental grace of the Eucharist reveals itself to even the smallest child and draws us into the universal embrace of God's love. I could not have said it better myself. You know, the, the medievals referred to beauty as the splendor of truth. Because the virtues of truth and beauty are, are closely connected. And Catholicism is an incarnational religion. Therefore, our worship must do more than, than hold to the intellectual truth about Jesus. As Father Renier says, it must also give body to that truth by revealing his beauty. He says, quote, our parishioners have difficulty expressing why the Mass affects them so deeply. They only know it does. 
They only know they want to tell their friends about it. But I think he puts his finger on the reason when he says, the church has always understood that the Mass is less a catechetical lesson and more a dizzying encounter with a beauty ever ancient, ever new. Now, I think that many pastors uh, are reluctant to give that beauty a chance because insisting on the, the poetic, you know, the, the, the aesthetically beautiful strikes them as impractical. And because embracing old customs and tradition is anathema to their post-Vatican II modernist formation. And yet, as Father Renier demonstrates, it produces measurable results. In his case, quote, a growing parish, enthusiasm for evangelization, and lives changed. And I'll give Father the last word on this. He says, our choice for beauty has had stunning results none more than the dawning knowledge of each parishioner who comes to Mass that they are known and loved. And that's no nonsense. And like I say, I've seen it. I've seen parishes that are transformed this way and that, you know, that through that one weird trick, simply by being more reverent. And uh, let's see, we're just talking about how restoring traditional liturgical practices can help to alleviate the crisis of faith in the church, right? You get people to come to Mass. Well, in a related story, two of my liturgical pet peeves collided on Facebook the other day. Uh, the first of those pet peeves is the adoption of the orange position by the faithful. Right? This is when, when the priest uh, spreads his hands to say, for example, the Lord be with you. Some people in the pews copy that gesture when they reply, and with your spirit, right? Similarly, when the priest leads the Our Father with his, you know, hands spread, it's called the Oren's position. They, they, you know, the people imitate that gesture. Uh, although technically this is an abuse, even the, the U.S. bishops have said, you know, you don't mimic the postures of the priest. That's, that's, that's an abuse of the liturgy. Uh, okay, so that's one pet peeve. The other uh, is the abandonment uh, of amongst Novus Ordo priests of what they call the canonical digits. Uh, and what is that? Well, in the extraordinary form, and from time immemorial, the priest would hold his thumbs and forefingers together from the consecration to the purification. Unless he was actually holding the host, he would hold his thumb and fingers together. And the reason is to ensure that not even the smallest particle of the host should be lost. You know, and it, it's a shame that this practice is not required by the rubrics of the new mass, but it's good that many younger Novus Ordo priests are starting to restore the canonical digits because, I mean, after all, it's, it's no longer required, but there's no law against it. Well, I read a post on Facebook the other day from Dr. Peter Kuznetsky, uh, the, the very prolific Dr. Peter Kuznetsky. I noticed that I'm quoting him a lot, but he, you know, he produces a lot. Anyway, he posted this. He said, a friend conveyed the following true story to me. A trad-minded priest at a particular assignment is slowly tradying up, as he puts it, his place with chant, ad orientum, or confession time, etc. One of the things he does is the canonical digits. Now, someone noticed recently that certain people in the pews who hold their hands out at the Father are also doing the canonical digits, right, in imitation of the priest. He says, eventually, that's going to have to be gently corrected. But for now, he says, one can let it ride, because out in the barbarian borderlands, in the midst of our new dark ages, 
liturgical praxis is bound to be imperfect. All right, so we was talking about how, you know, how important good liturgical practice is, but we need to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, charitable. Uh, he said the light of civilization will someday shine again. Now, I appreciate his charity for the faithful who, quote unquote, know not what they're doing. He was less charitable in his assessment of the liturgies at the Vatican at Benedict XVI's funeral. And no doubt you've heard about Pope Benedict's funeral or maybe watched it for yourself. You heard how the Vatican staff wasn't given time off to go to the funeral or how the Vatican fly didn't flag at half-mast, even though flags in, in Britain, a Protestant country, flew at half-mast in his honor and, and, and a plethora of other slights. I didn't put myself through the viewing of said mass, especially as there were more reverent memorial masses to actually attend, which brings me back to Professor Kwasniewski's comments. He said on the 4th of January, okay, he, he posted a picture of a beautiful, extraordinary form Requiem Mass for Benedict XVI that was celebrated at St. John Cantius in Chicago. Okay, and here's what he said. He made the following prediction. Quote, there's more sacredness, awe, beauty, and piety in one half minute of this Requiem Mass for Benedict XVI held earlier at St. John Cantius than there will be in the entire polyglot charade that will count as the poor late Pope's funeral at the Vatican. Okay, the rest of that prediction and comments when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic here in Virgin Most Powerful. Stick with us, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back. Before the break, I mentioned um, that Dr. Kosnevsky posted a, a photo of a requiem mass for Benedict XVI back on the 4th of January and predicted that there was more beauty and piety in a half minute of that mass than um, there would be the polyglot charade, in his words, that will count as the poor late Pope's funeral at the Vatican. He went on to say, this in itself is a most interesting phenomenon of our times. It is fair to say that there will end up being thousands of places on earth that offer more devout, more traditional, and more recognizably Catholic requiems for Joseph Ratzinger than the Vatican itself will do. The capital of the liturgical empire has fallen, while the far-flung provinces keep the flame alive. All I can say to that is would that it were not so, but he was right. And his prediction came true as I suspected it would. And that, I'm afraid, is no nonsense. And a final word on the passing of Benedict XVI. I uh, was following a rabbit hole online the other day and ran across a post from the blog Vale of Veronica. And the author, uh, uh, lady, I'm assuming, said, I myself am saddened over the passing of this pope who made the Latin mass more available to me, at least for a time, before it was taken away again. As I sat at mass this morning in a Novus Ordo mass, okay, I'm going to stop there for a second, just to, just to say, here there is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. All right, this is, this is a, a lady, again, presumably, who you know faithfully attends the Novus Ordo mass, discovers the traditional mass and starts going to, the, to, to that mass after the Pope made it available, 
and then you know went back to the Novus Ordo when our the current occupant of the chair of Peter uh, took it away again. And that's the way she sees it. The mass, I had it for a while, now it's gone. So she says, as I sat at mass this morning in a Novus Ordo mass, I found it fitting that the gospel read on this day, the day of his death, right? This was posted on the uh, December 31st of last year. He says, the day that he died. He says, as I sat at mass this morning, I found it fitting that the gospel read on this day, the day of his death, is the last gospel. The priest even pointed it out in his homily. And for those of you who don't know what the last gospel is, it is the gospel that's read at the end of every Latin mass. Okay, and this is after the dismissal, Father goes to the gospel side of the altar and reads uh, the opening 14 verses of the first chapter of St. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all the way to through verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory is of the Father's only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. And everyone genuflects at the words, and the word was made flesh. The last gospel is a regular reminder for you know centuries of the great act of salvation that is celebrated in the Mass. But she goes on, she says, I don't find it coincidence that this is the Novus Order reading on the day Pope Benedict died. He who gave us more access to the beauty of this tradition, who allowed me to experience a profound holiness in a way I never had before, died on the day of the last gospel reading. This realization was accompanied by sorrow for me. I left Mass and visited our old chapel to place white roses in front of our Blessed Mother. I ended the, the year with a chaplet of seven sorrows. I think it's a fitting memorial to Pope Benedict XVI that priests who are once again forbidden to offer the Mass of the Ages make their Novus Ordo Mass as reverent as possible, as we saw with Father Michael Renier. And I, I feel for this woman who can do nothing but express her sadness through prayers of the, to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, in my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, I point out that uh, the post-conciliar popes from Paul VI all the way to Benedict XVI taught that there's no rupture between the old and the new forms of the Mass. You know, uh, Paul VI, he says, you, you, you will, amongst the novelties, you'll discover that the, that the uh, outline is still the same, still the traditional one in his words. But Benedict XVI recognized what I would call a rupture of experience. You know, the, the truth is that today many of the faithful are profoundly estranged from the devotional atmosphere and in some cases even the, the, the doctrinal teaching of their ancestors, you know, what, what had been common to all Catholics. And so, you know, you have that blogger, Veronica, stating that the traditional Latin Mass, quote, allowed me to experience a profound holiness in a way I never had before, something that she had never experienced in the Novus Ordo. Now, I'm thankful that back in, you know, we had the 2010 um, new translation of the Mass, the Novus Ordo Mass in English. It's more faithful, more accurate, uh, more respectful of the structure and the substance of the Latin text, and also with you, you know, at all. And it is made all the richer through the use of the, the formal language, 
which preserves the traditional character and style of the Roman Rite better than the old translation did. You know, this formal language that Father Rainier speaks of as the poetic. You know, and so I think that healing the ongoing rupture of experience, uh, a, a way to start immediately, is the way that the celebrants, the priests, choose to follow the rubrics of the new Mass. You know, rubrics, you remember, it's like stage directions that indicate the actions of the liturgical minister. Okay, what they say is in black, what they do is in red, uh, hence rubrics. And and healing this rupture of experience simply by choosing certain options doesn't require any special training or, or expense or, or even a single word of Latin for that matter, although it is certainly possible to pray many parts of the uh, Novus Ordo Ordinary in Latin, you know, the, the Agnus Dei or the Sanctus, for example. And this approach is what Dr. Kosnevsky referred to as the continuity principle, right? Essentially, this means that from among the dizzying array of Novus Ordo options, Father simply chooses those that are most consonant with the tradition and then simply follows the old axiom, say the black, do the red. And so we have some uh, uh, examples here, some sample choices that uh, Father can read or chant, preferably, the entrance hymn. Right, or the entrance antiphon, rather, and the communion antiphon. The, the, the entrance antiphon and communion antiphon are often, um, you know, in many celebrations of the Novus Ordo, especially daily ones, that are, are never uh, expressed at all. Uh, you can use penitential rite A, right, the first three of penitential rites, which includes the, the full Novus Ordo confidior and the full Kyrie. He can pray the... The, the preparation of the gifts, right, the, the, what they replace the offertory with, um, he can pray it silently the way it was in the old Mass. Uh, and if he insists on using lay readers, he can encourage them to use the um, word brethren rather than the optional brothers and sisters at the beginning of the readings and invitations to prayer and so forth. He can choose to pray the Roman canon, uh, a.k.a. Eucharistic prayer number one, and pray it in its entirety. Because even the, even the Roman canon was untouched. It was, it was not left untouched by, by the Novus Ordo because it optionally removes the litany of the saints. But he can use, you know, it's perfectly legitimate, perfectly permissible to use the entire Roman canon. And as we mentioned before, he can use the, the canonical digits, holding his thumb and forefingers together from the consecration to the ablutions. Um, they can make use of incense whenever it's important. Ring the bells at the consecration, at the priest's communion, right? The, the, the smells and the bells. Still a part of the Mass, just left unused. You can bow, or he can bow, rather, noticeably over the host and chalice while he's reciting the words of consecration, which he then can recite slowly and deliberately. And he, and this is again one of my pet peeves, <clears throat> he can correct by omitting the invitation for the congregation to share the quote-unquote sign of peace, which is a novelty, a liturgical novelty, and entirely optional, according to the rubrics. He can perform the ablutions thoroughly in the traditional manner with wine and then water and then wine again. He can bow his head at the, at the name of the divine persons, at the name of Jesus and Mary and the saint of the day. And he can instruct the servers and the readers to do also. It would take a little time to form that habit, but that's certainly uh, something that can be accomplished. The point is that all of these options are permitted 
by the Novus Ordo Misae, by the Novus Ordo Rubrics. In fact, they actually constitute the norm, at least de jure, if not de facto. And all the things that I've uh, rattled off here, you'll notice they, they depend primarily on the priest. So he's not going to have to ask anything extra of anybody who is assisting in the liturgy. You know, with the exception of the use of the incense and the traditional ablutions, uh, you know, which he may not know uh, and which may require a certain amount of training of the servers. None of these suggestions, you know, entail any really any special preparation or, or expense. I mean, it's, it's right there, oftentimes right there in the missile. And it's just a matter of where he chooses to put the bookmark. You know, and I would like to think that such an approach can provide a middle way between the extremes so that you know, you've got the traditional latin mass on one end and then you've got the the you know uh, unmercifully abused novus ordo on the other end and in the middle you can have a a beautiful reverent novus ordo liturgy that looks sounds smells and tastes catholic it's just a matter of having the will to do it you know, the faithful who attend the ordinary form of the Mass consistently say that the thing they, they desire most of all is more reverence. And reverence is the, the one weird trick, if you will, that Father Michael Renier used to completely transform his parish. And it can transform yours as well. And that's no nonsense. All right. Well, we've come to the end of another one. I want to say thank you for being with us. I want to remind you one more time about the upcoming Spiritual Warfare Conference on March 25th and 26th, 2023. Go to vmpr.org and register online. Call the office toll-free if you'd prefer to speak to a human being. <laughs> the number is 877-526-2151. Take a moment, reserve your place at the annual Spiritual Warfare Conference this March 25th and 26th with uh, Father Chad Ripperger, Jesse Romero, Dr. Dan Schneider, Kyle Clements, and of course, our very special guest this year, Bishop Joseph, Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, going to be along with us. Don't wait. If you wait, uh, it will fill up, I promise. So um, take the time to do it now. And while you're there, uh, if you have been supporting us with your prayers, thank you so much. If you are able to support us financially, uh, either with a one-time donation or by becoming a, a monthly donor in any amount, hit that donate button on vmpr.org, and uh, we will certainly thank you for it. Be assured of our prayers. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. 